Well, many of us know what it's like to be busy people and then to have somebody ask us to do something else. Uh, Sometimes uh, when that happens, we have to wrestle with uh, whether or not we've got the time or the energy or the inclination to to do that. And, and, And frequently, our decision will be based upon maybe the relationship that we have with the person who asks us. The closer that relationship is, oftentimes the the more willing we are to, uh, uh, to do what is being asked of us. Uh, sometimes uh, we're asked to do something, and, uh, and it's simply out of the fact that it just is the right thing to do, and so we, we, we go ahead and, and do it. Uh, but it's interesting because all of us, with the different things that we have on our plate, uh, when something else comes along, we have to, we have to consider how to prioritize things as we're making the decision whether or not we're going to participate in it or not. And, and, and one of the things that, uh, that, that my wife and I have been finding, even as, uh, as our kids get a little bit older, is the fact that um, uh, when we ask them to do something, sometimes there's that glint in their eyes, and it's like, aha, negotiation time. Uh, no, that's not what it's intended to be, but, um, but there's a sense in which we all do that to a certain extent, whether it be uh, here at the church where we're asked to do something, whether it be uh, at work, maybe our boss asks us to take on an additional project, or perhaps uh, our kids are in school and, and, and there's a, a serving uh, opportunity at the school that they're asking you to to take on. And we kind of wrestle with, should we do this? And, and part of our decision-making, if we're honest, is that we kind of ask ourselves the question, what's in it for me? What do I get out of it if I do this? You know, maybe we think to ourselves, if our boss asks us to take on an additional project, we immediately think, ah, well, that might put me first in line for when this promotion comes up. Or, or, or maybe it's uh, um, uh, volunteering at the kids' school, and we kind of think to ourselves, well, I'd kind of like the other parents to think that I'm this really great guy, and that I'm a great parent and really engaged. So, and, and so we go through this process, don't we? Maybe I'm the only one, but I don't think I am. We do have a tendency to ask the question, what's in it for me? But we're not the only people to ask that question. In fact, that was the question that many people in ancient Israel were wrestling with and asking back in the days of the prophet Malachi. And this morning, as we uh, come to the final portion of this letter, as we wrap up the series that we have been in these last several weeks in the Old Testament letter of Malachi, or or book of Malachi, we are uh, going to see and wrestle with a question that many of us may not come out loud and ask, but sometimes creeps into our hearts. Is it really worth serving God? What do I get out of it? What's in it for me? If you have a copy of the Scriptures with you, I certainly hope you do. I would encourage you once again to turn there with me to Malachi chapter 3. Malachi chapter 3, as we've talked about in recent weeks, this is the last book of the Old Testament. So as you're looking for it, you can uh, find the book of Matthew, the first book of the, the New Testament, and just turn back a page and you'll find yourself in the passage. So you can follow along with me this morning. Malachi chapter 3, and beginning in verse 13. 
And right there we read these words. Your words have been hard against me, says the Lord. But you say, how have we spoken against you? You have said it is vain to serve God. What is the profit of our keeping his charge or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts? And now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. And, and, and so we have to understand that, that throughout this book of Malachi, we've seen this kind of back and forth, this dialogue, this debate between God and, 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 and the unfaithful people of, of, of Israel who have been accusing God of all sorts of things. And so God, time and again through this book, has, through the prophet, bought a charge against the people, and their response has been anticipated in each case. And it's kind of one of a hard-hearted, argumentative response. And we see that again here. In in fact, we could say that uh, uh, the question is being raised, what's the point of serving God when serving self seems to have all the rewards? What's the point of serving God when serving self seems to have all the rewards? You see, God here makes this final charge in, in the book against the unfaithful and disobedient people of the land. But we've got to ask the question, do they have a point? You know, we can be quick to, 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 to judge, quick to say, oh, those wicked Israelites, but, but do they have a point? You see, God here starts off, he says, your words against me have been says the Lord. And what seems to have been happening is that there were groups of people who would get together, and when they got together, they would start to grumble against God. Oh, this is going wrong in my life. I I can't believe... I don't even know why I bothered taking that offering to the temple. Uh, This this isn't working out the way I expect, and I just feel like none of my prayers make any difference. I don't even know why I bother going to worship. And they were accusing God, and God actually lays out for them here three charges. The first is that he says, you have said that it is vain to serve God. So as they get together, as they grumble, one of the things that they're complaining about is they're they're saying, ah, you know what? Serving God is pointless. It's worthless. Makes no difference. Second charge, or as it develops, They're also saying, what profit is there in keeping his charge? In in other words, in in obeying his commandments, in in obedience. Or of walking as in mourning before the Lord of hosts. And this is a reference to repentance. And so they're saying, what difference does obedience to God make? Uh, what, what, What difference does it make, the whole repentance thing, acting around like we're sorry about what we've done? It doesn't make any difference. And again, we can be quick to judge. And yet, we have to understand that this isn't just a message for 2,400 years ago. You see, living the Christian life is not easy. Oftentimes, doing things God's way brings us into tension or even collision with the culture around us. 
And so, when you go into work and you have a meeting with a potential new client, and the only way for you to win this client is to lie to them about your product or service. And you say, no, I'm not going to do that because that wouldn't be honoring to God. And then your boss says, that promotion you were in line for, forget it. You didn't close the deal. It is understandable that in that moment that we might ask the question, is it even worth it, God, doing things your way? When we've been dating and our boyfriend or our girlfriend breaks up with us because we have chosen, because we have put a stake in the ground and said, I want to walk in purity. And I don't want to engage sexually before marriage. And now we've broken up from this relationship and all of our friends are in relationships and we're feeling like we're the one on the outside. Right? That we might wrestle with the question, God, is it even worth it? When we're struggling financially and we're talking with our neighbor and he tells us about how he just fudged this thing on his tax returns and how it's really easy to do and if you just do that, you got a huge return. And we see the result of integrity and is it even worth it, God? And as I travel to different places around the world and I talk with believers whose churches have just been burned to the ground or whose pastors have just been arrested and thrown into jail, we have to ask the question in the things that we see, is it really worth it? And that's the question that they're asking. Now, I, I, I want you to be aware that in verse 14, when they're asking this question, they're talking about obedience. They're actually not being obedient. When they're talking about going around in mourning, it's, it's not like they're actually being repentant. There's a hardness of heart that they have here. But the question that they're asking is something that we have to be honest about. And then there's a third accusation or charge that they're making against God. In verse 15, it says, and now we call the arrogant blessed. Evildoers not only prosper, but they put God to the test and they escape. In other words, here we are doing this, and the people who are, the people who are doing well are the people who are cheating. The people who are doing well are the ones who want nothing to do with God. How does that work? And worse than that, they get away with it, and God does nothing about it. It may be that you're here this morning, and the truth of the matter is you're wrestling with this very issue. You see, there's a lot of people who struggle with the idea of responding to the gospel of Jesus Christ because they've got to answer this question does it mean that I've got to give some stuff up in my life? Because if it does, I'm not sure if it's worth it. And maybe you're here and you're, you've been checking out this whole Jesus thing. And you've got some questions and you're trying to figure some stuff out. But you're wrestling with this issue. So what does it mean if I actually if I respond to this invitation that Jesus gives to, to come to him and to surrender my life to him? Is it worth it? If that's you this morning, I just want you to know that we are so 
glad that you're here. And I want to commend you even for asking that question because, you know, Jesus himself said to his disciples that we ought to count the cost before coming to him. That there is a cost to count. And what I want to encourage you to do is to not give up and, and, and to not stop because, because the greatest thing you can ever do is accept that invitation. And, 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 and you'll see more of that in just a few minutes. But there are others of us who are here and we've been walking with Jesus for a little while now and maybe even perhaps for a lot of years. But as we're looking at life right now, it just feels like things are falling apart. We're tired. And we've been in this cycle for so long. And we're wondering whether or not God sees. Does he even know? Does he even care? And it may be that you're here this morning, but you're seriously considering that when you walk out of here today, you're not coming back. Because you're wrestling, is it even worth it? And God would say to you today, don't give up. Don't lose heart. Don't quit. Don't throw in the towel because the final chapter of the story has not been written yet. And while the people in the days of Malachi, many of them were grumbling and even accusing God, there were some who were a remnant of the faithful and we see how God responds to that faithfulness. Look with me at verse 16 and following. It says, Then those who feared the Lord spoke with one another. And the Lord paid attention and he heard them. And a book of remembrance was written before him of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. They shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts. In the day when I make up my treasured possession and I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Then once more you shall see the distinction between the righteous and the wicked. Between one who serves God and one who does not serve him. And so uh, before we saw that there was this group of unfaithful people and, they, and they, they're grumbling and they're complaining together and they're kind of accusing God in their conversations. But here we see a different group and they're, they're seeking to be faithful. They're seeking to honor the Lord. And I love what it says. It says that God heard them. In fact, what we see is that, that God will not forget those who faithfully serve him. And his reward will be more than worth it. You see, there's this, this faithful group of people. They're speaking together and it says, the Lord paid attention and he heard these people who sought to honor him in the midst of this unfaithful generation. And so here through the prophet Malachi, he points them to three amazing truths or if you like, three aspects of his reward. Uh, the first of those uh, that we see here in this passage as he declares, the Lord declares, you are remembered. You're remembered. Look with me. It says, a book of, of remembrance was written before the Lord of those who feared the Lord and esteemed his name. Now, this book of remembrance would have made sense to the people in ancient Israel because, you see, at that time in history, if you were a king, 
that everywhere that you went, you would always be followed around by a chronicler. That's a guy who's kind of like a secretary. He writes down everything that you do, every decision that you make. And when you go from place to place, or when people come before you, there was a special record in the Chronicles made of faithful, loyal subjects. And the purpose of this was so that the people would know that the king honors those who honor him. And so oftentimes there would be a special honor that was given to those who had shown themselves to be faithful and loyal, just like in the days of the book of Esther in the Old Testament. An interesting account, King Xerxes, a a very ungodly king, uh, um, he one night cannot sleep. And so he calls his chronicler to him to Uh, instead of counting sheep, he calls the chronicler and says, hey, read to me about my life and about my reign and about how great I am. Kind of some ego in there, I should think. And and, and so the chronicler starts reading to him. And he comes to this point and says, and there was a time when there was a plot that was made against the king by some of the servants who were going to take his life. But the, the Jew, Mordecai, Foiled the plot. And, and suddenly the king says, whoa, whoa, wait a second. Was anything ever done for Mordecai? Was anything ever done to honor him? And there's almost this comical scene there in the book of Esther where the king determines to honor Mordecai on the very same day as the evil Haman was going to put him to death. In the providence of God, we see him working there. But the picture there is of a remembrance And the New Testament speaks of the same idea. In fact, it refers to the book of life, the Lamb's book of life. Did you know that if you are a follower of Jesus Christ, then right there before the throne in heaven, there is a book in which your name is written and the names of all of those who by grace through faith have received the gift of life and salvation through Jesus Christ. And it sits there in the presence of the Father at every moment and your name you're a believer, is indelibly marked in that book and cannot be rubbed out. Your name is always before the Lord who remembers his people. And so, folks, you may feel like, you may feel like God doesn't see. You may feel like everybody else is getting their, their, their part and somehow, somewhere along the way, God seems to have forgotten about you. That is a lie. He remembers you and your name is right there before him at all times. Just as it says in Hebrews 6.10, For God is not unjust so as to overlook your work and the love that you have shown for his name in serving the saints as you still do. What's that verse saying? It's saying God knows how to reward his people. He will not forget. You won't miss out. You are remembered through the prophet Malachi, to, to, to these people who are seeking to honor the Lord. He not only says you're remembered, he says you will be received. You'll be received. Look with me. It says, it, it, it says in verse 17, they shall be mine, says the Lord of hosts, in the day when I make up my treasured possession. If you're a follower of Jesus Christ, You are part of his royal priesthood, his holy nation, his people belonging to him. You have been brought from from death to life. You are a new creation. The old things have passed. Behold, all things are new. You have a new identity in Christ. 
All of that is glorious, but guess what? It's just the start of what is still to come. The New Testament speaks about our inheritance that is waiting for us. It is certain and it is sure, and there is coming a day when God gathers his people together and he will bring his children together in his presence for all eternity as his beloved people. You will be received, you will be welcomed like you have never experienced welcome before. And more than that, he says you are forgiven and there is no condemnation goes on to say here, I will spare them as a man spares his son who serves him. Spare them from what? Spare them from the judgment that is to come. Spare them from the condemnation of the righteous wrath which will be poured out against sin and ungodliness. Why? Because there is forgiveness in Christ. Why? Because there is no condemnation because the debt has been paid, the price has been dealt with, the penalty has been overcome. And so there's this glorious promise that's given here. And in verse 18, he, he, he explains, then at that time, once more, you will see that there is a distinction between the righteous and the wicked, between the one who serves God and the one who does not serve him. Right now, things may seem upside down. Right now, it might not appear clearly. But God will reveal that there is a difference. And then, this book of Malachi, and along with it, the whole of the Old Testament comes to a close with these words. For behold, the day is coming, burning like an oven, when all of the arrogant and the evildoers will be stubble. The day that is coming shall set them ablaze, says the Lord of hosts, so that it will leave them neither root nor branch. But for you, who fear my name, the sun of righteousness shall rise with healing in its wings. You shall go out leaping like calves from the stall, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. Remember the law of my servant Moses, the statutes and the rules that I commanded him from at Horeb for all Israel. Behold, I will send you Elijah the prophet before the great and awesome day of the Lord comes. And he will turn the hearts of the fathers to their children and the hearts of the children to their fathers, lest they come and strike the land with the decree of utter destruction. And what we see here is that the surpassing worth of serving God will be clearly seen when Christ returns. The day of judgment or the day of the Lord is coming. Whenever you see this phrase, and it appears many, many times in Scripture, either as the day of the Lord or as it does here, the day, it is speaking about the time at the return of Christ. And, and oftentimes, many scholars will look at it through kind of the, 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 the lens that the Jewish people looked at a day. You see, even back in the book of Genesis, at the creation account, we see, and there was, and there was evening and there was a morning. There was evening, and there was morning. And, and, and so many scholars will look at it when they're describing the day of the Lord and say in a similar way, the evening is the time of judgment, the pouring out of God's wrath and the great tribulation. But the morning, the dawning of the new day, 
It's a time of healing and of vindication and of reward for the people of God. And so what we see here is that judgment is coming for the arrogant and the wicked who now seem to prosper and get off scot-free. It's interesting, notice with me that in, in uh, verse uh, uh, verse 1 of chapter 4, we see these people described, the arrogant and the evildoers. If you go back a little bit to where we started, back in verse 15, we see those same designations, the arrogant and the evildoers. And the point that's being made here is those people who you are tempted to envy right now because they seem to be getting all the good stuff and none of the bad stuff. Those people who are doing their own thing right now. And you look at it and say, uh, maybe it would be better to just be like them. God says in that day, those people will be judged and receive my just and righteous wrath against all who refuse to repent and accept the provision that is made in my Savior, Christ Jesus says that it will be like an oven, like a burning. All of their works will be burned up and there will be nothing left to show for it. But, but the righteous will receive healing and vindication from the Lord. Verse 2, I love this. But for you who fear my name, the Son of Righteousness will rise with healing in its wings. You know, many throughout the history of the church have looked at this verse, at this designation, and have thought perhaps it refers to Christ. In, in, in fact, um, uh, every year, uh, many of us sing this very phrase in uh, the, the, the wonderful carol, Hark the Herald Angels Sing. I messed up on the words of it for, in the first service, so I wrote them down here for the second one. Uh, in, in one of the stanzas there, it says, Hail the heaven-born Prince of Peace. Hail the Son of Righteousness, life and life, light and life to all He brings, risen with healing in His wings. It's a wonderful carol, but uh, at the risk of disagreeing with Charles Wesley, um, I don't think that this is a reference specifically to Christ, but rather the language here seems to indicate that this is more just a speaking of the fact that on that day, in the great and coming day of the Lord, which is speaking of the return of Christ, that it will be like the sun that is rising and as the sun comes up and its rays warm and kind of come against the skin, there, there, there's a refreshing, there's a reviving, there's a renewal that takes place and in that same way there will be a refreshing and a revival and a renewal and a healing of all of the hurts and the pain of the people of God who knows what it is to have walked this journey in this sin-sick world and have longed for their true home. And more than that, it's described here, it says you shall go out leaping like calves from the stall. It's this picture of the fact that, or, or, or of young calves being cooped up in this very small space and suddenly the gate is lifted and they go out for the first time with joy leaping and bounding in this freedom that they now experience. And says, and you shall tread down the wicked, for they will be as ashes under the soles of your feet on the day when I act, says the Lord of hosts. And it's, a, it's speaking of the vindication of God's people. 
many of whom have suffered injustices, many of whom will have suffered tremendous hurt, many of whom will have experienced the sting of sin committed against them. And God says, on that day, it will be as if you get to dance upon those things as they are defeated, as they are dealt with, as I vindicate you and reward you as my people. Because, you see, this points us forward to what Revelation 21 speaks about. On that day, there will be no more sickness. And there will be no more pain. And there will be no more sorrow. And there will be no more death. And God himself will wipe away every tear from our eyes. We may not see it right in front of us right now. We may be tempted to ask God, is it even worth it? He says the surpassing worth of it will be seen. Just keep on looking ahead. It's coming. It's coming. And then the book of Malachi ends with, if you like, a two-part conclusion. The first is found in in, in chapter 4, verse 4, and we might simply restate it as saying, keep on walking in obedience. Don't give up. Don't slack off. Don't turn back. Just keep on walking in faithfulness and obedience. It'll be more than worth it in the end. And then the second part speaks of this Elijah, the prophet, who will come preparing the way for the great and coming day of the Lord. The New Testament shows us that in a sense, in partial way, John the Baptist has already fulfilled this. As he prepared the way for the Lord at the first coming of Christ. But we also see through the pages of the New Testament that there is still a greater fulfillment of it to come. That God himself will work in such a way as to draw his people, Israel, back to himself. Because he is faithful. And his faithfulness endures forever. And so, I think it's very interesting and deeply encouraging that the last words, the final section of the Old Testament, speaks of the certainty of the reward for God's people. Just like the final portion of the New Testament in Revelation chapter 22, verse 12, speaks of the certainty of the coming reward for God's people when Jesus himself says, Behold, I am coming soon and my reward is with me. And so, I don't know what you came in here with this morning. I don't know what you were carrying and what is lying heavy on your heart right now. But first of all, if you're in a place where you're just feeling comfortable, where you're kind of feeling settled, where you're just sort of on the fence of this thing, yeah, the whole following God thing, yeah, I'll do enough to, to, yeah, I believe in Jesus because I want to go to heaven, but that's it. Get off the fence! Stop playing games! Because the riches of what God has for you, for those who walk 
is in courageous obedience. And, and you will find that even though it may seem costly, that it is of greater delight than anything you can imagine. So if you've been checking Jesus out but never taken that step, you've been coming to church for a long time and you've prayed a prayer back along, but you're not in the game, get off the fence. And if you came here this morning and you're just tired and weary and feeling overwhelmed, I'm wondering, is it even worth it? God knows. God sees. He understands. Keep on going because the finish line is just around the next corner. Keep on persevering faithfully because the reward is just over the next hill. Don't give up. Keep trusting Him because the welcome home is going to be more glorious than you can ever even begin to imagine. So is it, is it worth it? Is there anything in it for me? Is there really any profit in serving God. Friends, when Christ returns, we will see clearly the surpassing worth of serving God. But for the here and right now, lift your eyes off the circumstances. And look to the reward because it is coming and it is certain and it is worth it. Would you pray with me? Oh Lord, our God, we faced with so many different things on this journey of life. And sometimes it seems so overwhelming that we wonder if we can keep on going. It seems like this Christian life is too hard. And we wonder if it's worth it. Especially when we see those who don't honor you sometimes seeming to have so few problems, so few difficulties. Forgive us for the times where we are tempted to accuse you of wrongdoing. Forgive us for the times where we put expectations upon how you're supposed to act that are not righteous. Lord, would you help us to lift our eyes off the circumstances of the moment and trust in your promise. 
Lord, I pray for those who may be here this morning who perhaps have never responded to your gracious call to receive the gift of salvation through Jesus Christ. We're still wrestling over what they might have to give up or what that means. I pray that you would remove the blinders from their eyes. I pray that you would untangle the grip of the world from their heart and that you would show them the surpassing beauty of Christ. And I pray, Lord, for those of us who are weak and weary and burdened, that you would strengthen us, that you would keep us walking faithfully before you as we wait for that soon and coming day of Christ. Lord, we thank you for the certainty of your promise, for the greatness of your reward, and for your unending faithfulness. Lord, we need you. Every hour we need you. Hear our prayer. In Jesus' name, amen.